Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name's Cricket, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. Hi. <laughs> My sobriety date is October the 19th of 1969. <laughs> and that's because I've done thing, one thing right since I walked in the, to the, into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's the only thing I've done consistently right for 24 years, and I haven't taken a drink of alcohol. I've made every mistake sober I ever made drinking. Learned a few new ones in AA. Uh, in AA, they call them character defects. <laughs> when you're drunk, they call them illegal. <laughs> but that's okay. I'm one of those women that Marty was talking about last night. <laughs> but it was only after I got in AA that I really thought that men thought that it was supposed to be free. <laughs> <laughs> they said it was a sharing program. I thought, uh-uh, darling. <laughs> a friend of mine was telling me she spent $12 to come here for an hour. And I said, you can make that back in 30 minutes. And she said, I'm too old. I said, no, we know how to be real grateful. <laughs> My sponsor taught me that I was supposed to disclose in a general way what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like today. And I'll try to do that to the best of my ability. I do not believe in such a thing as a high-bottom drunk. I do not believe in a low-bottom drunk. I don't think there's any female anywhere that's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous or any male anywhere that's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous that was at a higher bottom than I was. I don't believe there's anybody that was at a lower bottom than I was. I think it all depends on what garden you're planted in. The garden I was planted in may have had more weeds than yours did, but it's the same thing. A lot of people are protected by society in alcoholism because of their careers, because of their family name, and because of those type of things. And the only difference is that their recovery is harder because people look at them and say things like, what could possibly be wrong with your life? You've got a fine home, you've got a fine wife, you've got a fine education, you've got a fine career. What could possibly be wrong? You can't really be an alcoholic. But if they ever stripped all that away and exposed the inside of that person to the whole wide world, they'd see just another alcoholic. They'd see all the pain and the grief that happens to us. <clears throat> I happen to have been born into a family that society called illiterate. I didn't know what it meant, and it meant that we didn't know how to read or write, and that was an accurate definition. My, I don't know much about my real father. He's full-blooded, <clears throat> full-blooded French. He sired 17 children, and none of us met him, so I know he was a very potent man. <laughs> that just, you know, common sense tells me that. My mother's full-blooded black Irish, very, very superstitious. She believes that one child in every family is born evil, and you determine that child by the lightest weight at birth, and I weighed two and a half pounds when I was born, so I was born possessed. I was born evil. 
I worked hard to earn that reputation after a while. My mother married a gentleman that was a fine person, and he took her and the children. He had a third-grade education, and the only way he could support us was we followed crops all over the United States. I liked crop following. It's kind of a lost art now. It just doesn't happen the way it used to happen. But it was a neat way of life. We traveled everywhere. And we lived in things that society called shanties. But they weren't shanties. They were our homes. We didn't have indoor water. We didn't have electricity. We didn't have those kind of things. But there were other things about crop following that made those kind of things real unimportant, real unnecessary. There's just something magical about picking fruit and vegetables. There's something magical and clean about dirt. And I don't know how to explain that where you can even begin to understand it, but it's the truth. The only thing I did not like about crop following was that for some reason, if you think I have a resentment against authority, you may be right. <clears throat> Those people in authority believe that every time the fruit and vegetable season changed and we had to pick up and move, which could be several times a year, that all the children should have to start school at a new place. And it seemed as if every new school I started, I was either too fat, I was too thin, I was too tall, or I was too short. There was always something about the outside of cricket that made me not fit in with the other children. Other children were not allowed to play with us. They were not allowed to go to our homes. People were frightened of us. They associated us with a totally different culture. They thought we were gypsies, and they thought that we'd steal their children. We had enough. <laughs> we stole lots of things. We've never stole children. It just wasn't appropriate. It was unnecessary. So their kids weren't allowed to play with us, and I didn't know why. Most of my life I believed that if my hair were a different color, if I had pretty teeth, if my eyes were a different color, if I had clear skin, if I was built right, then I'd fit in. We bathed once a week, and we bathed in a galvanized tub in the middle of the kitchen floor. And the, the run of the litter always went in the tub last. <laughs> they don't change the water in galvanized tubs like you do in a regular bathtub. What they do is they heat water on an old wood stove, and they fill the tub, and the kids start getting in, and they bathe. Well, everything that was on them is now off, and it's in the tub. By the time I got in, you can imagine what that water was like. They just add another bucket of warm water. <coughs> I had real, real ugly skin. And my home wasn't a safe place. My home was a scary place. My family, it was the type where you went outside when the sun went down. You weren't afraid of outdoors. Nothing hurt you outdoors. And you knew what was going to happen indoors. And inside that home, I had to find a safe place. I had to find a place where Cricket could go and nobody could reach her. You know, their hands couldn't reach her. Nobody could reach her. And the safest place in our home was the, behind the wood stove. And I could crawl behind that wood stove because that's what we used for all of our heating and cooking. And I fit just right. We had gone to church and we went twice a year. We went at Thanksgiving time and we went at Christmas time. And we went because a minister 
would stand behind a podium and he would say something to the effect that the congregation should feed the hungry people. And so in exchange for us listening to his sermon, we'd get a great big wicker basket and it'd be filled with good stuff. It'd have that ribbon Christmas candy and it might have meat in it and all kinds of neat stuff. And I sat there in that church and I sat on the back row with the rest of the crop followers and I listened to that man. And he said, anything I ask for, if I prayed for it in the name of Jesus, I'd receive it. Anything. And see, I believe that. And I went home and what I wanted more than anything in the whole wide world, I wanted clear skin. I wanted a place on my face where I could rub my fingers without feeling uglies. And so I went home in the mor- that after church and I prayed on a spot that didn't have a zit because I didn't know how, how sharp this man named Jesus was and I didn't want him to get confused. And I put my finger on a spot and I said, in the name of Jesus, when I get up in the morning, make the rest of my face as clear as this spot is right here. And see, I believed that when I got up, my whole face would be clear. And I was excited. I thought that was going to be absolutely wonderful. And I ran to the mirror the next morning, and there was a zit right where I prayed. (laughs) See, I knew Jesus didn't like me. I just knew it. If he liked me, he would have done what that man said he was going to do. And I went back behind the wood stove, and I went before that God, the man that this man told me was the father of this Jesus. And I said a prayer. I was about 12 years of age. And I said, Dear God, Sir, my name's Cricket, and I don't really believe in you, and I don't believe in family, and I don't believe in cleanliness, and I don't believe in goodness. But just in case, just in case you really truly are somewhere, I have one last prayer, and I don't want any special favors from you ever, but my prayer to you is help me to never feel again. That means I don't even want to feel good, sir. I don't want to feel anything for the rest of my life. I started drinking alcohol the next day, and it was whiskey, and I drank it behind the wood stove. My first drink of alcohol was a whole bottle of whiskey. And I I don't know about anybody else. I know that when I drank it, it burned my throat, and it burned my chest, and it burned my fingertips. It came right back up burning, and I drank. I kept drinking, and I quit. I could start turning off this thing in here with whiskey. Whiskey became the only reliable, trustworthy friend I had. It became the only thing that made it okay for me to exist. I ran away from home and I lived on the streets of Denver, Colorado for about nine months to a year. And the state of Colorado stepped in and they said, little girls don't live the lifestyle I was living. And I didn't know why not. And so they were going to punish me And once again, society called me something, and I didn't know what they were calling me. They said I was incorrigible, which meant that I was 12 years of age and no adult could handle me. I found that out later on in life. They took me to a place in Morrison, Colorado. At that, It was called a reform school. They took me in there, and they took me to a room, and they said, this is your room. It was the first time in my life there had been one person to a room one person to a bed. There were sheets on the bed. That was a new experience. 
there was indoor water, there was indoor toilets, there was electricity, and I, I really liked punishment. I kind of enjoyed that. Three meals a day, three meals a day, and I stayed, and I did what reform school girls do. And when my time to go home came, I left, and I went right back to the streets of Denver doing whatever a 13- or 14-year-old teenager has to do when they live on the streets to get that next drink of alcohol. At the age of 16, the state of Colorado stepped in one more time, and they said that young teenage girls do not live like I was living. And once again, I thought, why not? (laughs) They didn't recognize teenage alcoholism. They decided to put me in the Colorado State Insane Asylum in Pueblo, Colorado. It was not a hospital to me. It was not a treatment center. It was an insane asylum. They had to come up with a diagnosis, so they diagnosed me as schizophrenic with paranoid reaction with psychotic tendencies. I didn't know what they were calling me. I had eight years sobriety, and my sponsor told me schizophrenic means you're two-faced, and you are. Paranoid means you think people talk behind your back, and they do. And psychotic means you'd rather kill them than, than yourself. And I would, even today. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I went into that state hospital, and the admittance ward was almost the size of this room. And there were people sitting on floor, the floor all over the building. And there was an odor, and there was a feeling a feeling that went in and started stripping the last bit of that soul that I had, taking it away, just a little bit at a time. I have a total of four years of formal education. I like the sound of that, four years formal education. Of course, that means grade one through four, but (laughs) that's okay. It still sounds real good. I went in that hospital, and to cure me, they gave me Valium, 25 milligrams, four times a day. They gave me 10 milligrams of Librium four times a day and 50 milligrams of Thorazine four times a day. For 18 months, I didn't want to drink. The compulsion was removed. (laughs) They also agreed that I should have electric shock treatments. Three times a week, they laid me on a gurney, and this is back in the middle 50s. They laid me on a gurney, and they'd wheel me into this room, And they would put a round row of gauze in my mouth, about that big around. And people would hold me from my neck all the way down to my feet. And the psychiatrist would put sticky stuff here and a band around my head. And he would reach in front of my face and tilt my chin back. The only part of my body I could control at all were my eyelids. And he'd raise his hand to that electrical lever, and he'd look down at me and asked me if I was afraid. Well, fool, (laughs) wouldn't you be? You know, wouldn't you be? I don't know what those shock treatments were designed to do, but after having them three times a week for 18 months, when I left the Colorado State Insane Asylum, I weighed 300 pounds. The rest of my teeth had rotted out of my head. My hair hung down to my butt. I'd been locked in the ward with a criminally insane, and I could no longer function. My chin hung to the side of my chest, and I shuffled. I don't know how to describe it. I had lost the ability to take a step. 
I could move forward, but it wasn't walking. It was just moving forward. And the only sound I could make, it was still a voice, but you had to know how to hear it. The only sound I could make at that time in my life was, uh, uh, and I drooled. When I left there, I was almost 18 years of age, and I'm real grateful that I left two weeks before my 18th birthday because on my 18th birthday they were going to sterilize me, and I would not have had the benefit of having the most beautiful daughter in the world if they had done that. I left and I went right back to the streets, and I traveled all over the United States on the Greyhound bus for the next 10 years, and I did whatever I had to do to get that next drink of alcohol. I didn't care about anything or anybody. I did not know how to feel. Not just in my head was destroyed. My heart was destroyed, but even beyond that, inside of all of us, I believe there's something that they call a soul. And even the thing that they call a soul had been destroyed. I never had a desire to change my lifestyle. I wound up back in Denver, Colorado. The week before I got sober, I was sitting in a restaurant with a man, and somebody copped a resentment, I guess, because they walked up and shot him in the face with a shotgun. The only thing I felt, the only thing I felt was irritated because I couldn't finish my meal. I weighed 78 pounds. My hair still hung down to my knees. I was cute. <laughs> I was cute. See, I, I was, I couldn't feel. I could not feel. I'd met a man and his wife in a beer joint on East Colfax in Denver, Colorado. They went in that beer joint every Saturday night. His name was Harry, and he was in a wheelchair. He was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, but nobody knew that. Nobody cared. <laughs> and this particular night, Harry comes up to me. He brought his wife, and he, she had something called Al-Anon. Uh, he said, Cricket, every Saturday night I have to bring my Alan on dancing because I can't dance. So he'd bring her to the beer joint and that she'd dance. And he said that he and his wife had watched me for a while and they thought I had a problem drinking. And I said, I don't have a problem drinking. He said, Cricket, you go places you don't remember going. And I thought, that's normal. He said, you fight over stupid things. No, now, you're wrong there. I've been in a lot of fights in my life, but never over anything stupid. He, he thought it was stupid because the week before, I was in my beer joint, sitting on my bar stool, and this nice-looking woman said, oh, Cricket's inebriated again. Now, if she'd said drunk again, and I understood what she was calling me, it would not have been a problem. But she said I was inebriated. Well, that was fighting words. So that wasn't stupid to me then, and it's still not stupid to me today. <laughs> I still haven't made amends. Probably never will. She should have called me drunk. <laughs> and I told, he asked me if I'd go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous with him and his wife the next day. And I said, sure. He said, there's one catch, Cricket. When you wake up in the morning, we don't want you to take that drink of alcohol. I said, that's no problem, big boy. He said, really? And I said, that's right. He said, you'll get up in the morning, you won't take a drink. I said, I'll get up in the morning, I won't take a drink. He said, and you'll go to the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous with us tomorrow night. And I said, yeah, I'll go. About noon that 
that next day he called. When I woke that morning, I did what I had done for many, many years. I sat up, reached to the side of my bed, and with shaking hands, brought the whiskey up to my lips. And for some reason that morning, I could not take that first drink of alcohol. Today I know that was God doing for me what I could not do for myself. When he called and he said, uh, Cricket, this is hairy. I said, yeah. He said, did you have a drink? I said, no, big boy. Told you I wouldn't. He said, do you want? No, I don't want one. Oh, <laughs> not much. <laughs> he said, do you need a ride to the meeting tonight? I said, I don't need anything from you, idiot. I told you I'd be at your meeting. I'll be there. Okay. And he said, do you know where we meet? I said, yeah. Because he'd given me the address. It was 1311 York Street. It came time to go to that meeting. And I'd never driven a car. I have to have special permission to have a driver's license. And I called a yellow cab to take me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the closer I got to that AA thing, the more that word anonymous bothered me. I'm a crop followers kid. Anonymous sounded like the Ku Klux Klan. It truly did to me. And I did not know racial prejudice. Because of the way I was raised, I didn't know it existed until I was sober and moved to Texas. And it was a surprise to me that I had two prejudices. I didn't like red-haired women, and I didn't realize that till I got sober. And I didn't like gay people because of the state hospital. When I walked into my... I had this taxi driver let me off about a half a block away from the AA group. And after he drove away, and I couldn't see his taillights any longer... I walked into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I walked up the steps at 1311 York, and there was a red-headed lady. Her name's Sharon. And she came walking down the aisle, you know, and she looked at me. She come up. She says, hi, are you an Alki? Well, she didn't have any business speaking to me. And so I knocked her on her rear end. <laughs> About a few minutes later, some of the gentlemen came back, and they said, Sharon, have you told Cricket that we care? And she said, not yet. <laughs> She wasn't practicing the principles. <laughs> and I sat there, you know, and I listened to their stuff. I didn't see anything I wanted in AA. These people laughed at jokes that weren't funny. They touched each other. I mean, they absolutely walked up and touched each other. I couldn't understand it. It terrified me. It was more frightening than the state hospital because those people were supposed to be nuts. These people just were. And to me, there was a big difference. I sat there, and I kept going every day, because this guy told me, I don't think you can stay sober. I don't think you can go without drinking. And I kept saying, yeah, I can. And I thought, well, this is getting real old real quick. I'm real tired of sobriety. I had about three days. <laughs> I want to get back to my beer joint. And I sat on the back row of the AA meetings, and they passed these wicker baskets. When I was a newcomer, they said, if you've got it, put it in. If you need it, take it out. Guess who the most needy person in that room was? <laughs> and you sit on the back row, and you take all their money. You've done exactly what they told you. They used to say, take what you can use now, what you can't use now, come back and get later. I took their adding machine, their typewriter. They read me these little questions. This is back in 69, and it says, has alcohol ever affected your job? I never worked a legal job. It enhanced my career. 
uh, and they read me all these things. Well, this woman, she read me this question, has alcohol ever affected your sex life? <laughs> and I looked around, there's some men in there, and I thought, I don't want those men to get the wrong impression. And so I told her, you write down the word no, and you write my phone number to the side, <laughs> because I don't want them boys to think that I can't do it. And so she did, and I passed it out. <laughs> and I did all these things. And I stayed sober a long time. I had about two weeks of continuous sobriety. And I was approached by a group of the older gentlemen at York Street Group in Denver. And I walked into the group one night, still had not taken a drink. And they came up to me and they said, Cricket, we're not putting up with your stuff anymore. And see, I didn't feel frightened. I didn't feel hurt. What I felt was relief. I could go back to my beer joint. I was real tired of not drinking. I really wanted to go back to my beer joint. They had walked me through the DTs because I went into convulsions my third day of sobriety at an AA meeting. They'd walked me through that, but I still wanted to go back to my beer joint. And I kind of looked at them because I, I, I had already figured out their little two-drink theory that they say in AA, being the intellectual, well-educated person I am, they said it's the first drink that gets you drunk. And I thought, wow, then I'll never have a problem again because I'll go to my beer joint, I'll order two drinks, and I won't touch the first one. And, and that made sense to me back then. It truly made sense. Alcoholics Anonymous was stupid. I was going to throw the first drink away and start on the second one. And in 1969, that made sense to me. I understand today that that's not the way it works. This man, these men told me they could not kick me out of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my heart kind of sunk, and I thought, you can't kick me out of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they said, no, I've been kicked out of church, I've been kicked out of schools, I've been kicked, I was kicked out of prison, because you're not allowed to prosecute a mentally ill person, right? Society says. So I, I got kicked out of prison. I'm sitting there, and these men are telling me they can't kick me out of Alcoholics Anonymous because they have something called traditions, and I thought, if I had something that sick, I'd get rid of it. <laughs> but I could no longer come into the meetings unescorted. For the next six months of my sobriety in Denver, Colorado, when I walked to the doors of the AA meeting, two men met me. They walked in with me. They sat beside me. They walked out with me after the meeting. That lasted six months. And I'd like to tell you I grew enough spiritually that they didn't have to do that any longer. The truth is, with six months of sobriety, the narcotics division of the Denver Police Force told me I had to leave Denver. So I quit having the male escorts. And I told the police officers, okay, big boys, where am I going? And they said, Cricket, you're moving to Fort Worth, Texas. And I thought, God. And I told them, I said, you know, drunk, I didn't go to Texas. Sober, you're making me move there? And they said, yes. Because, see, I don't know if I'm just stupid, but I'd heard that Texans use corn cobs. And we had outhouses, and we used magazine pages, and corn cobs, there was just no way. <laughs> and I really believed it back then. And I told them, I said, okay, boys, I'll go to Texas on three conditions. I want a high school diploma. I want three cases of the softest toilet paper mankind makes, and I want a car with a driver's license. They said, no big deal, Cricket. And they took me to a building 
And this lady read me a bunch of questions for about 30 minutes. And she said, you passed your GED. I thought, gee, education's a snap. (laughs) It's real easy if they want you out of a state. They bought me three cases of Charmin, and they bought me a 58 Rambler station wagon. That was my first clue that they were crazy. I got in this Rambler station wagon. I've got two legs. It's got three pedals. And they said, go. I said, what? I don't understand this deal. And I never could do it quick enough to get it to do right. And I went to take my driving test five days in a row. The last day I went in, none of them were going to get in the car with me. I mean, these are cops. You know, these are big men. And they're looking at each other saying, I'm not getting in the car with that woman. (laughs) And they have their bleeding deacons too, right? Because this one guy that had obviously been an officer for a long time walked up. He said, boys, I'll get in the car with her. And he went out and he got in the car with me. He said, cricket, start the engine. So I did. And he said, you've passed. (laughs) (laughs) And I went back in and they gave me my driver's license. And I heard this man telling them, The minute she gets it, she has to leave Denver. And I did the next thing that I was told to do. I left Denver, Colorado, and I headed towards Fort Worth, Texas. And I got there. I never parked where I had to go back. I never parked where anything could get in front of me for 30 feet because there'd be a wreck. And I got to Fort Worth, Texas, and I did the next thing I was told to do. Something had happened to the car. It never went anywhere again after I got there. I called a group of Alcoholics Anonymous, and the man answered the phone, and I asked him for directions to his group. And he said something. I said, listen, big boy, all I ask you for is directions. Can you handle that? Because that's all I want from you. And so he gave me directions to the Southwest Group in Fort Worth, Texas, and I hitchhiked to my first meeting of AA with six months of sobriety. And I walked into my first Texas AA meeting, and here came a red-headed lady. And she was yay tall. She was a tall, tall woman. And she walked up to me and she said, hi, darling. Only Texas women say, darling. And I knocked her on a rear end. (laughs) And I started hearing more and more. You know, I sit in those closed discussion meetings back then. It's 1970 by now. I'm not drinking. There's not a lot of women around. And I hear the men talking about their Al-Anons, how sick they are. They're sicker than we are. Well, you know, I... I had sympathy drinking and relationships and beer joints for a lot of years about the way men were treated at home, and here it is in Alcoholics Anonymous. They eliminate the drinking. And I thought, God, that's tragic. I wonder if those women know. And so I went to Harris Hospital, and I asked this gentleman where the intensive care unit was, and he said, it's right behind that sign there. And so after he left, I stole the sign. And I went back to our group, and it's middle of the afternoon, and I hung intensive care unit on the Al-Anon room door because I wanted them to know. And I don't know about any other AA group, but Southwest group, the Al-Anons had to walk through the AA meeting room. And back then, they could meet once a week on Thursday night, and then they could meet in the little room in the back. There's always a late alcoholic, and there's usually a late Al-Anon. This particular evening, I'm sitting there, and the Al-Anons all come walking in. They go in the door. The last Al-Anon goes in, and she shuts the door. And the AA starts snickering about this sign. Here comes the late Al-Anon. And this big intensive care unit sign's facing her, and her little ears turn kind of pink. And she slams the door with some enthusiasm. 
And about that time, about three seconds later, the Al-Anon came out of that room. The Al-Anon had veins sticking out here. And these things in your neck were really puffed up. And she had that little cute shrug where her shoulders went up like this. And she said, who hung that sign? I knew immediately who the authority was in their home. And I looked at her and I said, I did. And her shoulders sagged and she said, that's okay, Cricket. No, it wasn't okay. No, it wasn't okay. Let me tell you how God works this deal. I sponsor some Al-Anons today. And that's wonderful. Because what I had done was I'd taken everything I heard you saying and I took it as the gospel truth. Maybe it was the way you presented it. Maybe it was the way you walked it in your personal life. But it's not what my big book tells me today. Somebody got angry at Southwest Group and they torched it. And so they had to move. I didn't do it. (laughs) They called me. (laughs) Several times. And they asked me. And my response was, is my name written in the ashes? And they said no. And I said, then I didn't do it. One of the few times I've been innocent. Southwest Group had to move. And I had to go to another group in Fort Worth, Texas. And it was a group I'd heard about. I had eight years of sobriety by this time. Eight continuous years without a drink. And I'd heard about this group It's called The Harbor. It's a group that meets inside of a club facility. And I was told that first eight years, you can never go to Harbor. You'll never fit in. Those people are even more intelligent than normal alcoholics. Those women have class. Those people have four headlights on their car. You will never fit in. Cricket, they will never accept you. But I had no place else to go. So with eight years of sobriety, I went to my first meeting at Harbor Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I met a red-headed lady. She was even taller than Nadine. She was old. I didn't want to hit her. I would have but I didn't really want And she came walking up to me and she said, Cricket, my name's Betty G. And I'm real scared of you. And I said, good. And she said, but I'm going to be your sponsor. <laughs> so wait a minute, lady. I've got eight years of sobriety. She said, I'm not taking anything away from that, Cricket. You do have eight years of sobriety. And I said, lady, I don't need anything from you. I know how not to drink. And she said, let's go back here in this little back room. And if I think that you understand the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I will leave you alone. Because I think you've not drank just by being around the fellowship. And I said, okay. We went in that little back room and Betty G. opened the big book of AA. And she said, here, honey, read me the first portion of chapter 5. And I did. I started reading. Rarely have we seen a person fill this thoroughly followed our path, and I read on and on and on and on. And Betty G. reached over, and she took the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous out of my hands, and she said, Cricket, darling, you can't read. Wait a minute, lady. I read you the first portion of chapter five. She said, no. I had it opened on chapter three. And it was like somebody had stripped me. And I said, what are you going to do? with that information. She said, Cricket, I'm going to take you to TCU. 
You've just told me I'm an idiot and you're taking me to Texas Christian University? That doesn't make sense to me, lady. And she did. She took me to TCU. And I sat in there with a lady that was in her 80s. And this lady told me that she was going to teach me how to read. I said, you can't. And she said, yes, I can. I said, no, you can't. But she did. She told me, she said, Cricket, there's only a few things you need to know. There's 26 letters. Most of those only make one, maybe two sounds at the most. And those letters are going to learn how to join hands and make a word that you can say. I'm 37 years of age, pregnant for the first time. I'm sitting there in the last time. Thank you. I'm sitting there with these little kids, 9 and 10 years of age, that have some kind of disorder. And see, I don't like it when society puts those things on people. And those kids would say, I got a disorder. And I said, no, the adult that told you that has a disorder. You just don't know how to read yet. There's nothing wrong with you. And we sat there, and one day the thing flashed, and it was the first word that was my word. And I saw this three letters come up on this screen, and it was B-A-T. And I went, but that, everything inside of me for the first time in many, many years kind of came alive. And I thought, bat, that's the word bat. And I know what a bat is. You hit a ball with it. It's one of those things in a cave. It's my next door neighbor. I, you know, <laughs> I know what a bat is. And that's how it looks in a book when you're reading it. And see what happened. That group of people that never would accept me set me in their coffee room every day, every day. Those senior citizens in our Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous took what Ruth had been teaching me, and they sat there and they taught me to write. They taught me how to add. They taught me how to subtract. They taught me how to multiply. They taught me how to divide. A lady named Helen taught me how to type. All kinds of neat things. And I'm learning these things. And I'm learning these things. And I gave birth to a little girl in the same year. Cunning, baffling, powerful. But I leave the hospital and they send this baby home with me and I'm scared. I'm terrified. And I called my sponsor. I said, Betty G., I can't keep this baby. And she said, Cricket, why not? Because I'll hurt it. I can't. I didn't know how to turn off what would go on in here. And if I ever started hitting somebody, I couldn't quit. And I was frightened that I was going to hurt that baby. Within 30 minutes, a bunch of people from Harbor were at my house. And they said, when she cries and you start thinking those thoughts or you start tightening up inside, you take her in here, you lay her in her crib, and you go outside. And they made me do things that don't make sense to a lot of people, but it saved my sanity. They made me start reading out loud because I cannot read out loud and think about something else at the same time. They made me start singing songs 
out loud. Because if I sing a song long enough, the feeling inside of me will mellow out for some reason. I don't know why it works. It just does. It works for me. The day came when I picked that little girl up for some reason. And I looked at her, and I didn't just see here. You know, I looked in her eyes, and behind that baby's eyes was a person. There was really, truly something there. My sponsor had made me work the steps of recovery. With over eight years of continuous sobriety for the first time, I admitted I was powerless over alcohol and that my life was unmanageable because I could read it, and I knew what those words meant now. It wasn't what you told me they meant. And that was the neatest experience in my life, was to be powerless and be able to admit it and to know, to know that my life was unmanageable. And it was, all the steps were real exciting for me. They truly were because I came to believe that there was a power greater than myself. Didn't know what it was and that I could be restored to sanity. And I thought, kind of like Marty, I've never known that. But I think I did. I think when sometime before my awareness, I was a whole person. Sometime before my awareness. And I think God took that and restored me to that original, if not even better, inside of here. I went back before this God with about nine years of sobriety, and I prayed something to the effect of, Dear God, sir, this is cricket. And I don't really believe in you. But years and years ago, I said a prayer to you, and I asked you to never help me feel again. Sir, I was 12 years old. I'm 38 now. And I'd like to ask you to help me feel again. Because, see, I go to those meetings, and every time those people hold my hand, as soon as possible, I go to a restroom, and I wash it off. I can't stand it, sir. Those people walk up and they pat me on the back. And as soon as I can, I go home and I take a scrub brush and I wash it off. I can't stand it, sir. If there's any way you can help me to feel again, I'd appreciate it. And I know that that means I'm even going to have to feel bad. See, I don't know how your sponsor is with you. My Physical mother gave me physical life. My sponsor and those people at Harbor and some of those people at Southwest reached down inside of me and they ignited that little corner of that soul that was left and it was a very small corner. They ignited that and that took flame again. My sponsor became very ill. She made me change the way I dressed. She made me take off half a pound of makeup. <laughs> You'd be amazed how much false eyelashes can wear away. But she made me take that off. She made me quit using real bad language. She um, taught me to clean my house. She taught me to scour a bathtub. She didn't live long enough to teach me to cook. <laughs> but that's okay. Because what happened is my sponsor got arteriosclerosis. And she started having strokes. And I went by her house three times a day to clean her house, to clean her, and to do her meals if possible. Every day. And I went by 
on Valentine's Day one year. And she told me, she says, Cricket, I want to sleep in a lavender nightgown. I want six live yellow tulips, and I want sausage and biscuits for supper. And I said, okay, Betty G., you got it. And I went and bought her a lavender nightgown, and I bought her six live yellow tulips, and I fixed her sausage and biscuits for supper. And I took her upstairs, and I tucked my sponsor in her bed. She was a judge's daughter. She had all kinds of degrees behind her name. English was her major. And here I come along, her little lunatic. But my sponsor loved me more than she loved anyone in the world, even her own children. I know that in my heart. They don't know it. They don't believe it. But I know it. I know it. And I tucked my sponsor in the bed, and she looked up at me, and for the millionth time, Betty G. said to me, Cricket, darling, you know I love you. And a tear went down the side of her cheek. And I put my finger on it. I tried to trace that tear back. But see, sponsors' tears don't start here. They just don't start right here at the eye. When a sponsor cries for you, they cry from inside here because they really know, they really truly know how you feel. They really truly want you to have the very best that God can give to you. And I looked at her with my finger on her cheek, and for the very first time I said, Betty G., I love you too. And it wasn't just words. It was from all the way down deep inside of me. I know what love is. I know what love is. It's not just words. I don't love everybody. I can't because I don't know everybody. I don't like everybody. There's some real buttholes in AA. <laughs> there, there are. Why would you like them? You wouldn't like them drunk. The only difference is I don't hit them. You know, I let them be a butthole without hitting them. And that's, that's growth. I left my sponsor's house and went to continue some amends that she had me making. I went back the next morning. Never in my life have I knocked on my sponsor's door. Never in my life have I entered my mother's home without knocking. I had a key to my sponsor's house. I had a key to her car. I could sign on her checking account. I could sign on her savings account. I could use her charge plate. I could do whatever I wanted to do, and I never abused it because my sponsor gave me the gift of absolute trust. And I walked in her home that morning. I said, Betty G., I'm here. And usually what Betty G. would say was, I'm in here, darling. And I'd go where she was at. And there was no response. And I, I, my daughter was with me. And I went upstairs. And my daughter started up the steps after me. And I walked into the bathroom. And my sponsor had died in her lavender nightgown. You know, and here she is, a judge's daughter, and I knelt down beside her, and I felt again my prayer had been answered because I wrapped my arms around her, and I said, Oh, Betty, you know, how can you give it back? How can you? I was a nothing, an absolute nothing, with a lot of years of sobriety in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Those people are the reason I don't steal today. Those people are the reason I will not cheat you today. Those people are probably the reason I can get down from here and walk back there and hug my friend who came from Kearney. Those people are the reason I can call other friends in Fort Worth and say, I need help. Those people gave me real life. Real life isn't what you see walking and talking. When I was following crops, one of my favorite people from my childhood was an old black man. And he'd said, we called him stoops. Some of y'all call him porches. 
But he'd sit out on his stoop, and one night I walked over to talk to him, and he told me, he said, Cricket, someday, if you wait, you'll mount up with wings like an eagle. You'll be above all this. Because, see, my hands are tied, Cricket. I can't rescue you. I can't do anything to help you. But I know that my God can. And if you just wait, someday you'll mount up with wings. And what that black man told me when I was a little bitty girl, it came true. The day we buried my sponsor, I was angry because her daughter-in-law was coming to the funeral. And my sponsor had told me, and I don't know if she was joking, she said, if my daughter-in-law cries at my funeral, I want you to beat her up. And I said, okay. (laughs) Well, see, everybody at Harbor knew that Betty had told me that. One of them called Meg and told her, don't cry, whatever you do, because Betty told Cricket, beat you up. And they're up there on the family row, and I go in last, because I don't like people to see me hurt. And I sit on the back row. My sponsor's grandchildren, all three of them, stood up and walked to the back of that church, and they sat down beside me. And I tried to do the right thing. I said, you all need to get back up there with your mother and dad. They said, Cricket, we're sitting with the one that Granny loved the most. And they sat there, and I thought, you know, they're not burying my sponsor. They're not burying her. They're burying this. Because something inside of Betty mounted up at that last thing, whatever that is. Something inside of her came out and is still here, and is still tangible, and I'm not a lunatic. See, I had to go back. After I started going to harbor, I had to quit the faking. I went back, and I've taken a GED, and I passed it, and it took 24 hours. I took a driving test in Fort Worth, Texas, and I have special permission to have a driver's license, and I passed it the first time with the same police officer. I mean, they didn't swap me out, you know. I have a legal job. I have a daughter that's almost 16. (laughs) Incurable puberty. It's the closest thing to alcoholism I've ever seen. Self-will run riot. And I I, I like it. I like it because I told her, I said, when you get all through puberty, let me know, honey. She said, why? I said, because I'm going into menopause. (laughs) I'm excited. I get my turn. You know, everything's been given to this teenager since she was an infant. I figure two more years and, oh, gosh, I'm going to have menopause, even if I don't. (laughs) And it's exciting to me. But you know what? The way God does this deal is that most of my family have been locked up in prison or an insane asylum. My daughter last week was made sergeant in junior police. She's a sophomore in high school. She reads. She writes. She does mathematics. She's normal. She's not afraid to come into our home. And I have a great deal of trust for her. And it's still hard for me to say But deep inside of me, where you all ignited that little spark, I love my daughter. I truly do. And it's not just about an hour-long meeting. It isn't about just being here. What it's about is if you don't take that first drink of alcohol, 
then you are responsible when anyone anywhere reaches out. I believe that the people who wrote the 12-step of Alcoholics Anonymous did that. They did that because they loved alcoholics. I believe the people that wrote the 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous did that because they loved Alcoholics Anonymous. I see the traditions being used as weapons instead of tools sometimes. I truly do. And I guarantee you, Alcoholics Anonymous can be destroyed. If we take away what we're all about, then we are no longer. If you take away what I'm all about, then I'm not cricket. If you take away what AA's all about, it's not AA. There's going to be other people walking in that door that need you but don't want you. There's going to be other people that you don't like, and they may, the, may be the ones you need to reach out to. The most exciting part of my sobriety with 24 years is still when there's a puke and drunk in our meeting. I get to go, and I get to get a wet rush rag, and I get to kneel down beside that puke and drunk and clean him up. And see, that's not humiliating to me. That's not disgusting to me. Because I see that man at the very beginning of recovery. We are blessed, my friends, because we're still here. But we're only going to keep that blessing if we keep the door open for the new alcoholic that still comes in. And I don't understand all the stuff that goes on in AA. I work at the central office in Fort Worth. It's kind of like working for a group conscience. Uh, if I never thought I was gutsy before, I do now. And they want, to do, they want to do strange things sometimes. And I'm sure their intentions are good. But my sponsor said, think it all the way through. You know, publicize the 12-step list so anyone in AA can have the name and phone number. Huh? <laughs> Remember how I used to be? And you give me a list with anybody's name and phone number, and I get a resentment? You've given me some tools to do some real sick stuff to people. I'm sorry. And don't tell anybody where the Al-Anons need. I said, what? <laughs> you know, an Al-Anon calls in here and she's at the bottom. She's in total despair and I'm supposed to say, I can't tell you anything. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do it. It's really about people caring about people. I don't know anybody in this room real well except perhaps John, and I don't know him real well. I've known him long. But I know that I talked to Reggie, and I talked to Scott, and friends drove in from Kearney. Drove in from Kearney. And I know that when I walk off here, the only thing different about when I walked up here is that I gave you part of me. And that's what speakers do. We're no different than you are. We don't have any greater message. We just happen to be asked to be up here. But by sharing what we are, what we've done is undress in front of you spiritually. And we've said, this is what we are. If what I was offends you, I'm sorry. If what I was caused you a resentment, Maybe you were a customer and I need to make amends. <laughs>
if what I am offends you, that's your problem. Because, see, what I am sometimes offends me. But I know what God's going to have me be. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what it's going to do for a living. But God's going to have me be his. Because of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have sanity. I have serenity. I have a home where my child comes in at night. I have cleanliness. I have goodness. I have everything any woman could ask for anywhere. For that and much, much more, I thank each and every one of you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.